I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And this month, we're taking on one of the most controversial questions we've ever asked. And I'm not sure I even want to say it, but it's, do we need astronauts? Also, Richard will be visiting a new European satellite which will be able to measure trees from space. And we chat to author Kevin Cook about the NASA mindset that led to the 1986 Challenger disaster. Once something happens and is not a disaster, it's easy to think, well, it must be relatively safe. And as the great Feynman said, uh, try playing Russian roulette that way. Over the years, I've written well, dozens, possibly hundreds of articles for the BBC. Possibly hundreds, really? I think, yeah. (laughs) Well, I've been doing it for about 10 years, so yes. I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, over the years, I've written dozens, possibly hundreds, possibly thousands of articles for the BBC and others on human spaceflight, celebrating the achievements and courage of astronauts. Let me be clear, I am a big fan of astronauts, but... In 2020, I wrote one article for BBC Future that featured the views of the UK's astronomer, Royal Professor Sir Martin Rees. He suggested that maybe we didn't need astronauts or the International Space Station and that robots could do a better job. A huge amount of science has been done by sending robotic explorers to all the planets of our solar system and also, of course, to do lots of astronomy from space. But if we think of what's been done by humans in space, then since we had the huge adventure of the Apollo program, which was, of course, funded by superpower rivalry at huge expense, 4% of the US federal budget, then we haven't had anything very exciting in space over and above uh, hundreds of people circling around in the International Space Station. And none of them have done any worthwhile science sufficient to justify even a tiny fraction of the 12-figure sum which the shuttle and the space station have cost us. Well, as you can imagine, those views didn't go down well on social media. That's a bit of an understatement. I think you were a pariah, (laughs) weren't you, at the time? (laughs) Parana. Now, Sir Martin's published a book uh, with his friend and colleague of some 50 years, astrophysicist and writer Don Goldsmith. It's called The End of Astronauts, And when I spoke to Don, I suggested it was a manifesto for the future of space exploration. We set out to write such a manifesto claiming that we don't need humans to explore beyond low Earth orbit, let us say. And we're prepared to make that point. Uh, I've thought more deeply about it as we wrote the book, so has Martin. And there are a couple of things that become clear. First of all, sad to say, our influence is limited. We may have written a manifesto, but it's unlikely to be taken up outside the scientific community. Still, it might have an effect. Uh, And so, for example, if rich individuals such as Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk want to send people into space or go themselves, we're not suggesting some sort of world organization should clamp down on them, not that it exists. If the Chinese choose to go to the moon with people, we're hardly in a position to do more than argue that they shouldn't. But the basic thrust is we don't need humans. They cost a huge amount more than machines. As time goes on, the machines get better and better. Well, humans don't. Uh, if people are killed, we get upset, whereas the machine really is a loss of money, really. And uh, in the future, 
we could do anything such as, say, building a telescope on the far side of the moon with robots. Uh, that's the sort of thing Martin really cares about. I would even try to influence people like Musk to think twice about the need to colonize Mars, but it's sort of a hopeless task. Well, let's come on to some of those in, in just a second. Uh, I just want to go back because you're really dismissive uh, early on in the book about this idea that you hear again and again and again, and I'm sure I've used the phrase as well, that it's our our destiny to explore or it's in our, our DNA to explore. You really take that apart. Well, on the one hand, we totally agree. Uh, exploration is great. Astronomers and astrophysicists couldn't be happier with exploring the solar system as we've been, we've been doing. We have a wonderful spacecraft on Mars at this time, for example. It's just when people say that, they mean it is our destiny to send humans out to explore, which historically has been quite correct. We didn't have the machines that would allow us to do this, but now we do, and that's rather a tribute to humanity rather than a sad thought. So essentially, you're saying we're building our successors, and humans are fine up to a point, but robots are better? Well, first of all, right now, as I say, we have a mix. Uh, we have humans who haven't gone back to the moon yet, but are spending time in low Earth orbit. And we have machines that have gone through the whole solar system, uh, taken wonderful photographs, in some cases landed on these objects, taken radar on temperature observations, everything. Uh, and that's all happened concurrently with the, the thought, at least, if not the actual attempt of sending humans. So yes, we're sort of migrating, I hope, which we've already started, into a robot future which I know sounds as though it's awful. We all know robots are going to take over our lives and rob us of all individuality. But in the case of exploring distant worlds, you don't really need a human there to experience it, only for publicity purposes, in my view. Can a robot, though, or even a, a more advanced AI, experience it in the, in the same way that, that we can? I mean, you use in, in your book, for example, the example of... Um, Apollo 17 and Harrison Smith, uh, as the geologist on the moon, doing more science in that mission than probably all the others lumped together because he was a human. Yes, in 1972, just 50 years ago now, Harrison Schmidt could do far more than any robot could. His human capacities were enormous compared to the machines that existed at that time. And now they aren't, not least because Harrison Schmidt had to do his work in a few days or even one day, uh, you might say it sounds like that's more efficient than having a robot sit around for a year doing a little bit every day. But in fact, it certainly isn't as far as cost goes. And it's really not as thorough in many other ways. Can we live, though, through the eyes of a robot in the same way that we can experience something through the, the eyes of an astronaut? First of all, of course, we can never do it quite the same way because we identify with humans being one of them. Uh, on the other hand, We've done a pretty good job at identifying with some of these spacecraft, like the plucky little rovers on Mars. It's not the same thing as having someone there. But fundamentally, I regard the need to have humans, say, on Mars as a need to sell the program because that astronaut will represent all of humanity's hopes and dreams and exploratory abilities, all of which, to a large extent anyway, can be encapsulated in a wonderful machine that we build. Uh, it won't be exactly the same. I agree. There's a loss. Nothing is done without some cost. But speaking of costs, it's roughly a factor of at least 10 and maybe 100 in some cases when you think of sending an astronaut to Mars with all that he would need or she. Of course, there are many volunteers who will say, I don't have to come back. That saves a lot of money right there. Uh, but I don't think we'd stand for that as a species either. 
I suppose it is interesting that we are humanizing, aren't we? A lot of these robots, we we humanize curiosity and perseverance on Mars and uh, Rosetta on, on the comet. We do. And of course, it's not exactly something that NASA or the space community dreamed up. If you look at telly all the time, there's nothing but humanized animals, fake animals, I mean, and humanized robots that dance around. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't knock it since they're doing work that I'm suggesting it needs to be done. However, it's true. You can go a certain distance humanizing robots, but no farther. We wouldn't want them to be really called human. They're not, but they are wonderful robot emissaries of the human race. Now, you mentioned cost. Does this come down to cost? I mean, you know, particularly both being astronomers, you want to spend money on space science and not people, don't you? Yes. And of course, some would say, well, the thing is, if you don't send astronauts, they're not going to put the money into robotic space science. They'll put it into building highways, which would be good, or something that would be much worse. Uh, the allotment of costs we put in the hands of intelligent politicians. That's a dream I have. <laughs> I, I, but it's that sort of the way it's done, with many competing interests, many of them not so good, uh, competing for the pots of money they take from taxpayers. Okay, that's how politics works. That's how our government works. Uh, if you could save a lot of money, that has an appeal in some places. Of course, there's a, some people would say, let's save the whole thing. Why should we spend even 10% of what humans cost when we have so many needs on Earth? And they've got a point. Somebody has to decide these things. Is there a moral question here, particularly when you get later in the book, you talk about colonize. I mean, there's this loaded word, really, isn't it? Colonizing other planets. Is there a moral question that actually we're better not to send humans because we've made such a mess of the Earth? Well, that isn't a moral argument we bring in. There's even a moral argument about going to the moon, say, and ripping it up for its valuable resources, which aren't all that valuable except for supporting colonies of astronauts, uh, which is a circular argument for doing it. Uh, Bezos, and for that matter, the late Stephen Hawking said, look, humanity is doomed here on Earth. We were, we're bungling it too badly. As a backup plan, we need a colony of humans that can survive on another object. Uh, that's in the far, far future, I would say. We don't have really time to do that because uh, trying to create a livable environment on Mars, for instance, is a long way off. So there is a moral argument about sitting back, at least, and asking ourselves, why are we doing this? What is the cost, not just in money terms, but just in terms of ecological destruction of other objects, we may need what they have anyway. If you go to the moon and rip up its helium-3, which is valuable for fuel, there won't be any left for the next generation, even more so with the water that's in the rocks so hard to extract. What about this argument that ultimately, to survive as a species, we have to move away from the Earth? It's something that Mars Society talks about. It's something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I suppose it's the lifeboat argument, isn't it? Right. That you, We need to leave the Earth ultimately. Uh, some of us, of course, they won't be inviting most. Uh, but if you mean humanity may need to leave the Earth solely to survive, well, first of all, the moral argument would be, do we deserve to survive if we can't manage our own planet to the extent it allows us to continue living? It's been this wonderful, fecund uh, breeding ground for all sorts of wonderful things that are out there, uh, many of which we've destroyed, but luckily it's a small percentage. Uh, do we really have a right to just leave it as hollow shell? And by the way, that would be a good explanation for why extraterrestrial societies, if they're looking at us, have decided not to visit. They're disgusted. However, back here on Earth, we have to ask, why are we doing all this to Earth? Okay, that's a separate question. And do we really think 
that we could escape what we've done by sending, say, thousands of humans, Musk wants millions, uh, somehow to live on Mars. Think how long it would take to develop a society there. Would they be any wiser? The human nature might be the same and they'd ruin Mars. Is there any evidence that our successors, if we build them, so our robot AIs, if you like, that go out to these planets are going to be any better, given that we've built them? Ah, uh, no, there's there's no real guarantee, except they, they, never mind, they cost less. They do less damage simply because they don't have to breathe and eat and so forth. Uh, they don't require habitats. Uh, no, we could even envision space wars, or should I say, on, say, the moon. Uh, if the Chinese want to go to the moon and grab a lot of stuff, whatever it's worth, uh, there'll doubtless be a feeling we better stop them or at least go grab our own stuff. And whether it's with astronauts or machines, either way, we could have some serious destruction going on. What's the What would be your ideal, though? Would it be to, to scale back, to wind back the astronaut program, the International Space Station, plans to go back to the moon and onto Mars and replace that with robotic alternatives? What, what's well, the vision, if you like? Yeah. Before I get to the vision, the modest suggestion is to step back and think about it and talk about it, which you don't see. As you say, one of the great arguments is it's our destiny to send humans to other worlds, so shut up and do it. Uh, but the long thought would be to have some kind of coherent plan, ideally a worldwide plan. It wouldn't be impossible to have worldwide cooperation, but it looks unlikely at this point, especially today. Uh, in any case, an ideal would be a coherent, reasoned plan uh, for why we should start with machines first. Uh, I think Martin and I, I'll speak for myself, certainly, would be among those quick to admit that sooner or later, we almost certainly will sell humans, send humans to Mars and some other objects as well. We just don't have to do it at breakneck speed to prove something. We're proving it already, i.e. we can explore these worlds wonderfully well with our robots. Isn't though, th- these are all, you know, scientific rational arguments that that doesn't that doesn't that the the space program uh, as we have it today has not evolved from necessarily scientific rational arguments it certainly started off as a as a a political battle uh, as part of the as the cold war and we're seeing you know similar international rivalries today true and of course the scientists would say look what the cold war did for space exploration wonderfully well in a way on robot development, very poorly on humans. We managed the Americans to send uh, these astronauts to to the moon. Uh, And that was 50 years ago. Uh, Not accidentally, once we did that, we'd done it. The Russians, it turned out, weren't even competing. Well, you know, what a waste in in a way. It was a wonderful moment when humans stepped onto the moon. We could have managed it much better. We could have had an ongoing program if that was what we wanted. Uh, But we were in a non- scientific mode. And by the way, we're still in one. We always will be in one. Scientists will have only a limited sway. We can only advance scientific arguments. I wish I could come up with a a wonderfully winning emotional argument. I've tried with this, let's humanize the robots one, to the extent it'll work. Uh, We scientists really have only got scientific arguments to produce. Do you think, though, as AIs get better, that there will be an inevitability about your argument, or do we hope there will be an inevitability with your argument that actually policymakers, governments, NASA, Roscosmos, ESA will think, well, actually, 
we've got an AI that can think for itself, do all this stuff for itself. Why bother sending all the food and oxygen that a human needs? Well, that's an excellent point, except it gets back to the question of logic and science. Why are people so eager? I'll include the Chinese there because they have a thriving program where they say they're going to send astronauts out. Uh, What's in it for them? The answer would be sort of prestige, cheering people up at home, showing that they're wonderful, which they could do pretty well with a robot that was capable of more than we can. I mean, we Americans. Americans are always thinking only of Americans. At any rate, uh, I, I don't really know how the future is going to work. I could see some happy outcomes, but especially just today, I'm a little pessimistic. Nonetheless, Martin and I have tried to throw out the best arguments we can for why we should stop or at least slow down this breakneck, mentally speaking, rush to have astronauts go somewhere. Don Goldsmith, the co-author with Sir Martin Rees of The End of Astronauts. And the book is out in the end of March and you can pre-order everywhere. I do recommend it. I've got it here. I have read it. And it is extremely well argued. I'm not necessarily saying one way or the other <laughs> whether I agree with you. Oh, I don't. It was horrible. Yeah, well, yeah it was, you know. Anyway, I, I, what do I you do think? think it, yeah, thoughts? My thoughts. Well, um, I could, like you say, it's, it is well argued and I can see a lot of his points are ones which we shouldn't ignore just because you blindly want to follow the, you know, the Star Trek boldly go um, scenario and as you know I'm a huge fan of that (laughs) sort of ethos Um, but there are a few things he said during that interview that that do make you think and should make you think Um, not least I was listening to that interview for the first time um, in the car as we were driving up the A1 and as he was talking about do we as a planet, deserve to survive. I couldn't help notice that at the exact same time we drove past a sign saying the earth is flat. And and I must admit, you know, that <laughs> plus what's going on in the world right now just made me think, hmm, yeah, he, he's got a point. I think the, the other thing was him talking about, you know, questioning why, why, why are we concentrating so much on um, colonising Mars? And again, I think the longer it goes on, the more I'm beginning to sort of pull back a bit from it because it is such a dangerous planet to land still for robotic spacecraft, let alone um, human beings. And I remember, you know, a few years ago, I think the last time I interviewed Buzz Aldrin, I think it was 2016, and he was talking a lot about Mars then. And I, I'm, I'm sort of feel that his suggestions are quite sensible, which was basically using Mars's largest moon, Phobos, as a sort of base to explore Mars. Because then you haven't got, I mean, it would be effectively a little bit like having a base on our our moon, but then you've got far more, um, far safer variables, effectively, in terms of landing and, and setting up. Uh, things and then using that as your base to go back and forward to to Mars and having because Phobos doesn't have an atmosphere, so no, it'd be like landing yeah, on the moon. Yeah, 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 which we know about and we know we can do. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's actually I'm I'm more towards maybe that's the way to go in a stage rather than go straight straight onto Mars. I mean, just to pick up on one of your points, because to be fair. In, in this book, I mean, it does say the end of astronauts, why robots are the future of 
exploration, uh, and there was a picture of an astronaut on the front, a sort of pixelated astronaut that could be a robot, I guess, uh, yes. on the front. I think that's that's thinking. They don't rule out the boldly going no. in the far future. They're just saying, not ne- not yet. We can yeah. do it so much better with robots and AI. Although the, the AI um, stuff, you know, you, you were talking about um, Harrison Schmidt there. And, and again, I couldn't help thinking about... You know this this argument about there are certain things that humans can do better than AI and what AI can't do. And I, all I could think of was, well, yes, there's there's still so many um, sort of judgment calls and and effect, especially visual ones that AI can't do and humans are better at doing. One of those is face recognition. So basically, if say though say you did get intelligent life that looks vaguely humanoid there you know would <laughs> would we be better at uh, human beings better at spotting it but more often i was just more i was really thinking of the the ai that's used which we all have to use if we want to buy a ticket for a concert or um do some financial transaction we still have to fill in those I was going to say bloody grids, but you know what I mean. Where it's say, can you see a bicycle? How many bicycles? Can How many you traffic see lights? In this Always grid? traffic lights. Traffic isn't it? lights. Can you see in this grid? Because again, the AI, the AI isesn't good enough, and this is the uh, way to go. So there are AI isn't the sort of be all and end all of everything. It's not going to take over as completely and there are limitations and there are currently limitations so and i think we should you know that it was ludicrous that <laughs> that fallback you got just because you happened to just write a piece the, i wrote with an a argument. piece that I was, we've got know, to be it able is my to job argue. as a journalist I know, to put other points is, of view but i think this is partly you know the way life is on the planet at the moment is that people seem to lose the art of listening to evidence listening to arguments and you might not necessarily agree with it but it's really important to have a dialogue and to discuss it and so that you understand all the different points of view because that way you do end up with a sort of consensus and perhaps believe it or not a better way of getting to mars than just going full steam ahead um, let's have a Mars base. I, I did just want to mention actually. That was an interesting little. That was that was that was WhatsApp. It's because I can't discover because my laptop is connected to everything. Uh-huh. I think I turned off notifications, but there's always something. I know, yeah. Going on. It was about the pub on Thursday. Let me just turn it. <laughs> let's just turn it off. Uh, the reason I had my laptop open actually was because I just wanted to mention there's no shortage of people who want to be astronauts. So we've oh, just had true. the figures through uh, just the the last uh, week or so from um, oh, from ESA. ESA. In terms of who's applied for the the current uh, astronaut, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, career job, um, Isn't it the opportunity. Core, that's the, the word. The, yes, that's the, the word. Yeah. Opportunity. Um, of the twenty two thousand five hundred twenty three valid applications. Wow, gosh. <laughs> I know. They've got one thousand three hundred sixty one to the next phase. Um, I mean, that includes, I mean, 7,000 from France, uh, 3,500 from Germany, UK, 2,000. I mean, you know, lots of people want to go into and, space. And I did, I have seen on social media, um, because I either follow those people or people, I follow follow them. I have seen the identities of several people who I was quite shocked to see that they didn't make the first you know round because you just names afterwards they they are so impressive and they had all what you would Mm. think would be you know they had 
the relevant academic credentials, were really fit, had, had done, well, I mean fit in an athletic kind mm. of way, um, and were had way above. You know, we mm. know, don't we, from meeting astronauts, you have to be way oh, above. They're amazing. And these, these yeah. people were that. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, if they're turning those down, the standards must be incredibly high. Well, if you have any views on the future of astronauts, <laughs> do get in touch or share your thoughts. But be nice. <laughs> be kind, as they say. Share your thoughts on Facebook or Twitter. We're at Space Boffins pretty much uh, everywhere. Also, do think about writing a nice review about our podcasts um, or sharing it with your friends um, or no, no, just your, just your friends, not your enemies, just your friends. If you hate it, you can share it with your enemies, but then you wouldn't be listening to it if you hated it. And uh, and we're really pleased that you've been sticking with us for these 11 years now. It's just, just great. 11 years. I know. Wow. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're also supported by the UK Space Agency. And next, we head to the Airbus factory in Stevenage, where a new European Space Agency satellite called Biomass is taking shape. And as you're about to hear, it is a peculiar shape. Biomass is a radar satellite fitted with a giant antenna which folds up for launch like an umbrella. The satellite, which is due to blast off on a Vega rocket next year, will produce the first global map of forests, measuring the amount of carbon in the trees through trunk, twigs and leaves. Well, I went to see Biomass in the clean room where I spoke to Matt Crow, who's responsible for putting the spacecraft together. And first you'll hear from Carl Warren, the Biomass chief engineer. Well, it's tremendously exciting to be out of the office. It's also the first time in almost two years that I've been anywhere near a satellite clean room. And if you've not seen pictures of a satellite clean room, they're like an enormous white-painted sports hall, but with cranes and satellites inside. Is that a fair description, Carl? I, I think that's, that's a good analogy, yes, to the size of the space. A cathedral for satellites. A cathedral for satellites, that's lovely. Looking at this particular satellite, it's a challenge to describe. I'm going for a three to four metre high oblong box with a wedge on the top. Is that fair? Yes, that is uh, kind of what it looks like. Um, it is a rather unusual shape for a satellite. Biomass has this very large deployable reflector, which is about a, a four metres long and about a metre in diameter. So when we designed the spacecraft configuration, we essentially put that into the Vega small launcher fairing that is the launcher we were mandated to use, and then drew a spacecraft around it. So you're essentially working backwards. You know the launcher is going to be a Vega, relatively small, yep. solid rocket-based launcher. And you've got to fit that spacecraft in. Yeah, exactly. It was a hard sort of programmatic constraint for us, so uh, we had to fit in that launcher. So it was, how do we make that work? And we went through a number of sort of iterations in the very early phases to come up with the configuration that we have today. Certainly when I saw it first in person, it was much narrower than I had in my visual image in my head, only ever having seen it on the computer. But um, it actually is quite spacious as the spacecraft go. If you were to compare to a telecom satellite, it's not got anywhere near the amount of hardware in. But that's simply because it's to accommodate this big reflector in the stowed configuration, but also then to help provide the geometry for the big antenna system when it's deployed and to the, the relationship between the feed, which is mounted on one side of the spacecraft, which radiates out to the, uh, to the reflector. Now, Matt, you've been working on this for two, two years or so? In terms of it being here at, uh, at Stevenage? 
Yes, we have. Yes, we started receiving the first panels back in April 2020, just as lockdown began. And in that time, we've assembled the structure. We've completed it for its uh, structural campaign in Toulouse. We went to Toulouse, we tested it, and now it's back in Stevenage for flight configuration for, for launch. Now, you heard me struggling with the description of it. And I suppose that's the point. Really. These, are, these are bespoke satellites to design to do a specific job. That's right, yes. They're all unique in terms of what role they'll play once they're in orbit and how they're designed, as Carl said, to fit inside the launcher and then to perform their mission once they're in orbit. And what have been the challenges of, of building this, other than the fact you've got to fit inside the rocket? You can't just turn up at Kuru and say, oh, it doesn't fit. Because of its size, that's, that has been the main constraint because normally ones we've had here before have been a little bit smaller. So you can work around them a lot easily. But because biomass is so tall, we have to think very carefully about what configuration, what orientation the spacecraft has to be in to install all the hardware. So, for instance, if we're working at the very top of the spacecraft, we can't just go up on a very tall ladder. We have it on a big trolley, a turnover trolley, that moves the spacecraft from its vertical position, turns it over 90 degrees so it then becomes horizontal, and that allows easier access to the top of the spacecraft, which makes it quicker to build, and also it's safer for people to work around as well. Uh, Carl, this is a P-band satellite. What does that mean? What's P-band? So P-band is around 400 uh, megahertz, so it's quite a low frequency. Typically, uh, radar satellites in the past have operated at C-band, which is, uh, I think, about 5 gigahertz, or X-band, which is more like 9 gigahertz, so quite a lot higher in frequency than we are. The reason why biomass is operating in in P-band is because with that radar frequency you will actually penetrate through the forest and see the real structure of the trees c-band or or, or um, x-band it's a higher frequency so it's a shorter wavelength so you're really only seeing the with with x-band the tops of the trees and the the leaf structures and those sorts of that sort of reflections so you can get forest cover but not actually how much mass there is and the height exactly you can't get the depth of the the forest and what we're interested with in terms of the biomass mission is characterizing the big amounts of carbon so the the trunks and the big effectively the big branches it doesn't see it at that level but that in terms of the radar return that you get from the from the radar that's what you're characterizing and how will this information be used what will it what will it feed into i mean a lot of this information you could find is just really depressing because it tells you about deforestation or how much the earth is heating up by or pollution or anything like this i mean can this information make a positive difference Yes, so, so firstly, I mean, it, we hope that the, uh, that the data will be useful for people who are managing forests to actually understand better what's going on in their forests. Because it's a systematic measurement, though, across all of the world's forests, it uh, will provide us the data that can be used by the climate scientists as an input. It's a key, key climate variable that goes into their modelling. Today, essentially, the way that biomass is estimated is the scientists go along to a forest, literally chop a tree down, weigh it every piece and then say, right, here's an optical satellite image. All of this big area is forest. From this one tree, I know this, this is my estimate of tonnes per hectare, so I'll apply that to the whole area. So it's massively uncertain. The, the errors on it are about the same size as the, the actual estimate itself, so it's, it's got a huge uncertainty. So with biomass, we'll get that down to about 10% uncertainty, which will be a step change in improvement. Matt? How's it going? Uh, I see when we're looking at this, and I described it as badly, as <laughs> a, a wedge attached to uh, another, stru- I guess, a cuboid structure. Uh, you've got panels out at the sides uh, at the moment, and there are people in the, cl- in the clean room around the satellite. That's right. So at the moment, we are completing the 
the flight build of the spacecraft, and we're moving into more integration, so electrical integration, so making sure that all the com- onboard computers talk to each other, all the hardware talks to each other, and making sure that it works as one system, so that once it's in orbit, we know that at least on the ground it was talking to itself and that we can communicate with it. Now, we've heard a lot recently about the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope and that idea of deploying in space. How challenging is that to make sure... I mean, I'm not saying this is as complicated as James Webb Space Telescope, but it's the same idea, isn't it? You're not just sending something up that you send a signal to and you hope it, it works. You've got to get it to, to unfold, otherwise it's useless. Absolutely. We have to test every single component to make sure it works so we can say categorically that it will work in orbit. The reflector, for instance, will test all the different motors... In Stevenage, um, we'll then do a deployment after it's been through its environmental campaign on the spacecraft, the restraints on the spacecraft to make sure they work. And after that, the reflector itself is then shipped back to the supplier in Florida, and they'll do the, the big unfurling there to make sure it did survive that test campaign and therefore will survive launch and then be returned to Stevenage to be reinstalled before we go to Crewe. And that test campaign, you've got to simulate what it's going to be like to be at the top of a, a Vega rocket, which goes up pretty quick. Oh yeah, it's it's very fast. It's a very it, any any launch is very a very violent environment. So we will do all the different mechanical testing on it. So we'll go through a vibration campaign, an acoustic campaign to make sure it withstands the vibrations during launch and the noise that's generated to make sure it doesn't shake itself apart, as well as a shock test which simulates the clamp band that holds the spacecraft to the launcher to make sure the shock generator because it's a very very high tension on that clamp band and to make sure that that single shock doesn't cause any damage to the spacecraft either. And and are you on track for a launch? I keep seeing on various websites 2023. Is that that still the plan? That's still the plan, yes. Yeah, we're still still going from Crewe on 2023. Macro and Carl Warren at Airbus Defence and Space in Stevenage, UK. It's pretty obvious that, you know, as a result of the pandemic, we've been doing far far too many interviews over Zoom or uh, Zencaster and not enough on location, which is what we normally tend to do because you did sound uh, way almost too excited. <laughs> I couldn't remember. I mean, you know, we used to be out... Did you press every, play record? Well, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> you, know, every, every, you know, we're, we're out, what, every every couple of days normally in normal time yeah, we'd be out yeah. recording on location and I, I had this you know portable task cam recorder with my with my microphone and headphones and i looked at it and i was like a bit baffled <laughs> about which yeah. buttons i press oh and goodness. which which selection and there's quite a lot of options yeah with that, and also with those that machines. you're right because we've effectively had to learn new skills like everyone else i I'd never heard of zoom until the pandemic started we we now use zencaster for a lot of radio and audio and podcasts and stuff well, this is the but first it is time... a new technique well, because even first... editing yeah. it is very very different well, this is the first time we've been back in the studio for ages yeah we bought this quite not not inexpensive studio mm. uh, just before the pandemic yeah, just before the pandemic. yeah, yeah it was a savvy investment savvy investment yeah that we're bitter or anything <laughs> no no it's it's uh, it, it's still nice Anyway, on the 27th of January every year, NASA holds its annual day of remembrance because the date marks the anniversary of the Apollo 1 fire, which killed three astronauts on the launch pad in 1967. But it also commemorates the astronauts lost in the Columbia disaster in 2003 and the explosion that killed the crew of Challenger in 1986. One minute, 12 seconds after that launch, fire from a fuel leak caused by a failure of the rubber O-ring between the sections of one of the solid rockets cut through Challenger's external fuel tank like a blowtorch. 
the spacecraft blew apart. With no escape system, the seven crew had no chance of survival. Dick Scobie, Michael Smith, Ellison Onizuka, Judy Resnick, Ron Whitnair, Gregory Jarvis and Krista McAuliffe all died. Well, Krista would have become the first teacher in space and the launch was being watched by schoolchildren across America. In his new book, The Burning Blue, author Kevin Cook reveals the untold story of Krista McAuliffe and the Challenger disaster, some of which, as you'll hear, is still shocking. Well, we started by asking Kevin about the political background to the Teacher in Space programme. Well, there was a presidential uh, election coming up, and uh, Ronald Reagan was not popular at that time with the teachers in the United States. The National Education Association had come out against him, and it wasn't a bad time for him to announce his administration's uh, desire to congratulate teachers, to highlight them, to remind Americans how important they were. It was essentially a publicity stunt. At that time, as you recall, the space shuttle was seen as routine. Nothing bad ever happened to a space shuttle. Jerry Seinfeld used to joke about, are are those things still going on? Knowing that it was a publicity stunt, Krista McAuliffe signed up because she had her own purpose, and her purpose was to remind Americans that teachers are not only important, but they were terribly underpaid and underappreciated. And I firmly convinced that that was the main reason she tried to become the teacher in space. Uh, And what comes across in your book, which is excellent, by the way, is that she was an excellent teacher, that she was a really good teacher, also politically motivated to do this. She was. And uh, the Reagan administration told her to tone down her politics to some degree, since she was a Kennedy Democrat from the Boston area. She understood that. Uh, so after that, she was not as uh, as boldly political, but she never stopped supporting teachers and reminding Americans of their crucial role. I think that's something that's we've all been reminded of uh, in the recent pandemic. She was a terrific teacher, as you mentioned, in high school, a social studies teacher. She pioneered a class called the American Woman, and one of her subjects was Sally Ride, the first American astronaut. Uh, Had Judith Resnick been the first rather than the second, then that would have been one of Krista's crew members that she would have been talking about uh, in her class back in Concord, New Hampshire, well before this adventure started for her. That was what surprised me, actually, was that she was such a a feminist and was really interested in not just the role of women in space, but obviously must have been aware what her presence, if she won that competition, the fact that she was a woman and a teacher, it would have doubled the impact effectively, not just the sort of education political side, but the sort of feminism side too. I think that's true. She was a proud feminist. Uh, She was well aware that uh, before the new generation of astronauts uh, that Judith Resnick and Sally Ride were part of, there had been 73 American astronauts, 73 white men. In Krista's application for the Teacher in Space program, and then there were thousands, over 10,000 other teachers who were candidates. She wrote that she had grown up with the space program, as so many of us did, had watched the uh, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo programs, had uh, not 
felt that a woman would be allowed to participate. Finally, this opportunity comes along, and she said she was ready to participate. At the time, many, many people believed that uh, the space shuttle program was as safe as flying a passenger jet, which it certainly wasn't. Uh, I don't think that detracts in any way from her uh, commitment to her cause, which was essentially letting people know how important teachers are. She gave away a year with her family in order to uh, pursue this dream of hers. Just picking up on that lie, really, that the shuttle was was like an aircraft. Was, was there a delusion at NASA that this was, was as safe a, as an aircraft? What was the thinking that, you know, that the risk was so low? I suspect there was less of an illusion at NASA than there was in the outside world. The engineers certainly were aware of the many things that could go wrong. I think Richard Feynman put it awfully well. It's what has been called the normalization of deviance. Once something happens and is not a disaster, it's easy to think, well, it must be relatively safe. And as the great Feynman said, uh, try playing Russian roulette that way. I came to believe while working on the Burning Blue that uh, each shuttle launch had been an accident waiting to happen. The fact that there had been two dozen of them didn't really bear on that, as the makers of the uh, rocket boosters in Utah, Morton Thiokol, well knew, as the engineers well knew, this information wasn't shared with the crew, and that's one of the uh, near criminal things that occurred during the run-up to the uh, launch of Challenger. Do you think the risks were ever properly discussed with her? I don't think they were properly discussed. They were discussed, and it was part of her training that uh, that the tape uh, of the awful uh, event on the launch pad at Apollo 1 that killed three astronauts was played. Everyone had to listen to that, everyone going through training for uh, the shuttle program. It could not be said that uh, they were unaware of the risks. I think that uh, especially the the civilians who were part of the uh, program that uh, she was part of, they did not understand the full magnitude of the risks. As the delays went on, her parents were sitting in the chilly VIP section. Her father said if I could get out there and pull her off that thing, I would. And uh, Krista McAuliffe's mother said correctly, I think, even if you went out there, she wouldn't come off. She wanted to be part of this. The last thing that that her crewmate, Judith Resnick, said to her before they uh, got strapped into their seats was, the next time I see you, we'll be in space. If only that had been true. There was a tremendous pressure to just keep the shuttle flying and so many shuttles per year. Uh, and again, this kind of lie, I suppose, that the shuttle was like an aircraft. I was really shocked. Uh, one of the paragraphs in your book where you talk about the, the sh- Challenger being assembled uh, at Kennedy. And as the previous one was landing, they were literally cannibalizing parts from it to fit into to Challenger because the pressure was so high to get this thing up in, into space. That's right. And that was striking to me. And then cannibalization was the word that the NASA engineers themselves used. And they used a supersonic jet, a two-seater that, that was often used for training, literally strapping in boxes with the parts that would then be flown to Florida 
and plugged into the next mission. That is how tight the schedules were. And of course, schedule pressure was piling up as the weather was unfavorable. Record cold in Cape Canaveral the night before this launch, which had been scrubbed before through a couple of farcical events, including the fact that they had a problem with the hatch door and couldn't get a drill that worked that had uh, had batteries working. There were omens many times before the uh, final event, the final launch that uh, the world saw go uh, go so and, wrong. And it's important to to mention that at that time, there was probably political pressure to launch as well. There was, and I looked into, there There had for decades been talk that there was a direct order from the White House that the president, who was going to be giving his State of the Union message that very evening, wanted to mention Krista McAuliffe, wanted to mention the Challenger crew practically to look up and wave during the speech. I was not able to demonstrate that, and I don't believe there was a specific message you had better take off today because that's what the president wants. I think that was understood. There was uh, a great cognizance on the part of uh, all of the NASA managers. We need to keep to this schedule. This is a particularly important mission, the teacher in space mission. We wanted to uh, take off on January the 28th. Uh, we want the launch to be a go, and uh, therefore it was. And I don't want to go too much into the, the details of the, the tragedy itself and the, and the explosion. I mean, we've we've all seen those pictures. It's almost like they're replaying again and again. It was one of those first global 24-hour news news events, really, back in, in 1986. And I know, I mean, I, I know, you know, those of us who work within the BBC, we're very careful about using audio or, or footage from that because it's still... It's still utterly shocking. And what we know now is that the crew were almost certainly still alive through the whole thing and probably died when the the compartment they were in hit the water. That's right. And I was one of the people, of course, watching. I remember where I was uh, standing when I saw the first of the replays. And until a couple of years ago, I believed, as I think millions of people uh, do have believed for many years that they died during that uh, fiery, uh, the conflagration that we saw on television. And it's not so. Remarkably enough, you know, the heat shielding of the shuttle did protect them. Uh, they continued upward on sheer momentum until the, uh, as, as the crew compartment that they were in separated from the rest of the shuttle, as the rocket boosters spun off in their corkscrew fashion across the sky and continued, finally, they reach an apogee. There is no escape. They were, I believe, certainly aware of what was going on. They definitely uh, took emergency measures. One of the uh, emergency oxygen supplies for pilot Mike Smith was definitely turned. That's something that cannot happen by accident. The long plummet that led to the crew compartments hitting the ocean at more than 200 miles per hour is what killed the crew of Challenger. And something that we've discussed on the podcast before, which is still, um, you know, you mentioned shocking, Rich, about the images, and that's that's absolutely right. But I also think it's still shocking that there wasn't effectively an escape plan, a way in which to protect that compartment with the crew in by, be it, you know, often they do it with sort of explosive devices, don't they, and parachutes to... Well, to it's, the inherent, it's yeah. the inherent flaw in the shuttle system, isn't it, Kevin, that it was inherently unsafe? 
Indeed, if something happened, it wasn't unsafe in the first place. And if something happened during launch or reentry, there is no way out. The first shuttle missions did have ejector seats. There were only two crew members at that time. Once you get this many crew members on a different uh, uh, levels inside uh, the ship, it's really impractical to have ejector seats. And they would probably not have... Uh, worked in any case. There's a very short window in which you would be able to survive ejecting from a vehicle like that. Of course, after the investigation into the Challenger disaster, then there were pressure suits for the uh, astronauts afterward. Then there were parachutes, but there was no way out at the uh, time for the crew of Challenger, as they certainly knew as hard as they tried to save each other and themselves. It just seems a terrible irony that they covered the Apollo fire in their training where astronauts couldn't escape. And yet that's exactly what happened to them. Yes, that's true. And I think another terrible irony is, of course, as happens after a disaster like this, reforms, more safety, pressure suits, parachutes that don't prevent the Columbia disaster that uh, comes later as launch pressure continues and as corners are cut again. That's one thing that in the modern era of uh, space travel and space tourism, I do hope that uh, the lessons that were learned from both Columbia and Challenger and Apollo are remembered because there is going to be great uh, corporate pressure that will affect SpaceX and, uh, and Blue Origin and other uh, companies that are to follow. One of the things that I always feel, I mean, perhaps it's because, you know, we're based in the UK and so we didn't see as much of the publicity uh, and, and the sort of Krista effect that happened in, in, in the States uh, because, of, because of our domestic news and, and what have you, was that the, she sort of almost overshadowed the rest of the crew in terms of her death. And it, it felt like from this side of the Atlantic that it took a while before people started to realise and know the names. Like everyone knew her name, but not necessarily the names of other people who were in that crew and who died. That's true. And, and the Krista effect is a good term for it. When Reagan's aides rushed into his office to say the shuttle has exploded, the first thing he said was, is that the one the teacher was on? It's true that uh, when I began working on The Burning Blue, I could name her and could not name the other members of the crew who were remarkable people. And you wind up being amazed by their uh, achievements and so full of admiration for them. All astronauts are remarkable. I, I would come home from working on the book and tell my wife, you can't believe, you know, I, I spoke to another astronaut today and here is his or her life uh, and, and you wind up believing that they are all pretty remarkable people. They wouldn't be astronauts in the first place. They're death-defying, fit, intellectual valedictorians. It's true that especially in the U.S., where briefly Krista McAuliffe was one of the most famous women in the country, after it happened, she was remembered and the others were not. That's one reason uh, that I wanted to write the book, to find out about the others. And I wound up feeling very fortunate and privileged just to have a chance to tell some of their life stories. Kevin Cook and the book is called The Burning Blue.
And I mean, there was some, there's some shocking, shocking stuff there. And I, I, you know, we didn't want to go too much into the disaster because we've seen that replayed again yeah, so and again and I again. Think life's traumatic as it is <laughs> exactly at the moment. I don't think we need to add to people's. You trauma. just hope the lessons have been learned, and at least now, with all the spacecraft that are being developed, they all have escape systems and get outs. And I, you know, again and again, this, you know, my. my the, the space shuttle was such a remarkable machine, but it was also such a dangerous machine. Um, and much that I would still like to see it flying, I'm really glad it isn't. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would still like to see it flying, actually. Obviously with, uh, you know, a very good safety system. I love, well, I love the idea of a space plane. And what was like, remarkable... Yes, it's a space plane in, aspect that I do space, love. In space, yeah. it was a remarkable machine. You look at that, the Hubble footage, or when I was making a programme... Was it last year, the Equal Rights stuff mm-hmm. on for World Service? Um, and just the amazing things they could do, capturing satellites in orbit and then bringing them back down to be serviced on Earth and then taking them back up. I mean, it's brilliant, brilliant stuff that you cannot do now. And as a spacecraft, it was remarkable. But as a launch system, it was just really dangerous. Yeah. And it's it's funny because, you know, with the... It's interesting how with the sort of commercial space flight aspect of it it's the more conventional looking rockets okay they might have had a redesign and look really retro and sleek um that are still ahead of everything as opposed to a replacement space plane i would really like to see the sierra nevada um space yes, plane yes. Uh, in orbit with with a crew on board that was fun actually that that was the one that we've actually oh it sounds like it. i'm in favor of astronauts oh my now God, yeah <laughs> we we went inside that didn't we when we visited we did the we were quite a, quite, years a, quite a, quite a long while ago, ago yeah in boulder colorado i think yes yeah, yeah. and it was like a sort of a, a massive suv with wings, like chitty bang bang it really, wasn't like an suv yeah. with wings it was cool it was <laughs> yeah. really nice it, it was really good. It was like something out of Star Trek. It did yeah. feel like something yes, out of Star that's Trek. Right. Or Star yeah. Wars, maybe. Oh, a little shuttlecraft out of Star Trek. That's what I'm but, thinking. Yes. Is yeah. that what they were called? Uh, yes. Little yeah. shuttlecraft. Well, not little. Because yeah. shuttlecraft. Yes. Okay. I think so. I'll have to check that. Okay. Uh, that's this month's Space Boffins. Thanks as ever to the UK Space Agency for supporting us. I'm afraid no one has come up with a jingle for the space agency they've all got better things to do <laughs> but do get in touch if you haven't got better things to do <laughs> yeah. do, do send us your thought yes. do send us a jingle um, uh, and your thoughts and your, your thoughts comments. thoughts comments uh, we're at at space boffins uh, very everywhere everywhere thanks for listening